welcome to our continuing 2021 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility, and we help manage every aspect of a compliance program and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics to the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Kathleen W. McNicholas, MD, JD, CHC, CCEP, consultant and patient advocate with Medical Legal Patient Advocacy, Inc. presenting with us today. Dr. McNicholas earned an MD from Jefferson Medical College, magna cum laude, and completed general surgery training at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center and served as a surgical house officer in London at the Hospital for Sick Children, Great Woman Street. She remained at, CM, at CPMC for cardiothoracic training and chief residency then returned to GOS as a senior registrar in the cardiac unit. Dr. McNicholas was chief pediatric cardiac surgery, was chief of pe chief pediatric cardiac surgery at Deborah Heart and Lung Center prior to starting the cardiac surgery program in Delaware. Seeking a hobby, she studied law at Delaware Law School and earned a JD cum laude and an LLM in health law with honors. After retiring from clinical practice, she completed a fellowship in patient, safe, patient safety leadership and became the medical director of performance improvement and patient safety and led the Just Culture program and CANDOR. Currently, Dr. McNicholas is a consultant and patient advocate. Before we begin, I would like to mention at First Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals. And every month we strive to celebrate their hard work and dedication with our Compliance Super Ninja recognition. For this Super Ninja, our team is turning the spotlight on Carolyn Keith, Practice Administrator at Allergy and Asthma Center. Carolyn says, I enjoy working at AAC because my job is never boring. It is never the same thing every day. Congratulations, Carolyn. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM. Your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. So Kathleen, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much for being with us today and for presenting. Thank you. Thank you very much, Catherine, and thank you for those very kind uh, words. I'm really uh, honored and privileged to present a topic today, which I am very passionate about. I'm going to discuss medical error, candor, as you can see from the lead, and patient advocacy. Now, candor in small case uh, is something we all know about frank speech, frankness, openness, transparency. Higher case candor is a, a system to address medical error causing harm. And that is communication, which is where the C comes from, A-N-D and O-R is optimal resolution. So with that background, let's get started on this uh, little journey. First of all, a disclaimer. The opinions I express here are solely mine, not those of the institutions I am or was associated with. Although M is no longer alive, he continues to inspire me. His privacy and that of his remarkable family is honored and respected. I am truly privileged to present this painful personal experience in my perspective on a horrible event which affected many and which truthfully I'd like to prevent any from having to go through in the future. 
This is a very uh, poignant uh, quote from Rene LaRiche, who was the father of uh, vascular surgery. And he states, and this is pretty clear, and I'll convert it to myself, every surgeon carries within himself a small cemetery where from time to time he goes to pray. That cemetery is in my soul. Introduction, I'm, the content of this presentation is based on the following. My 30 year plus career as a pediatric and adult cardiac surgeon, my experience as a patient safety fellow and practitioner, and my current profession as a board certified patient advocate. This is M. This is M as I remember him. This is M, except when I saw him last, he had orange hair. Uh, this is M with his beautiful smile and his, his uh, gusto for life. I'm gonna tell you M's story. M was an apparently healthy 19 year old scholar athlete, super achiever in everything. He had a reported brief sinkable episode, a fainting episode following a record-setting distance swim, typical of, of M. At, my, at the request of the family, I referred him to an electrophysiologist for evaluation over his spring break in his first year of college. Day one, he had an EKG or an electrocardiogram and an echocardiogram. I had some concerns, although you've got to realize I am not an expert in either of those fields, and in discussing with the electrophysiologist, he was brought back the next day for a tilt table test and a stress test. So that was day two. Day three was a Friday before his return to classes. The diagnosis was benign. It was neurocardiogenic syncope or in the layman's term, well, not really layman's, but some layman's, vasovagal syncope, or we just say fainting after a stressful or upsetting uh, event. Uh, the father in the delivery room when the IV is started. <clears throat> he was said to have a structurally normal heart. Well, no follow-up was recommended. And I actually discussed with Matt these findings, with M these findings on Friday when he was going out to jog. He was told to liberalize his salt intake and there were no activity restrictions placed on him. He returned to college the Monday after his spring break. And it was a typical Monday. He had swim practice early in the morning. He attended all of his classes. He was a Latin uh, major hoping to go into architecture. His, his afternoon was pretty typical. He had classes in the early afternoon and he joined his teammates from the swim team and had a game of pickup bas basketball later in that day. M suddenly collapsed while playing pickup basketball. 911 was called, campus security was called, ventricular tachycardia was found, that's a quivering of the heart, and it was unresponsive to multiple shocks or defibrillations. He was transported to the hospital with CPR in progress. I was notified pretty quickly of this event, and uh, I spoke with the ED physician who said he was, quote, down 10 minutes. Further attempts at resuscitation would not be wise and all attempts at resuscitation being unsuccessful were unsuccessful. Death was pronounced. During the event, the cardiologist caring for M was also contacted. He called into the ED and recommended beta blockade, and that's a large dose of, of drug that could potentially help <coughs> in settling down the chaotic rhythm. Spoke with the medical examiner following at the hospital and told her that a recent cardiac evaluation after a syncopal episode was, quote, negative, close quote. And those were my exact terms. After this event, and in the pall of uh, incredible sadness and, and uh, upsetness, I took the echo, which I pulled up, and asked my associates in cardiology to tell me, please, tell me this echo is normal. Their response was, it's not. The ventricles were markedly enlarged. I said, but the tilt test was positive. Wasn't that diagnostic? Their response again was, and, and they were as sad as I was, no. The tilt test may reveal, quote, faulty brain signals, which cause low blood pressure. And that's what fainting is or vasovagal response. But a positive tilt test may indicate structural heart disease, specifically cardiomyopathy. 
I was crestfallen. In this period of time, I did attend the uh, uh, the viewing, but uh, had no real, real great contact with the family. <clears throat> the information that concerned me is the EKG shows some abnormal rhythms, which I was told by the cardiologist normalized with exercise. The resting EKG, however, was said to show malignant arrhythmias, different than the call. The medical examiner, to my dismay, confirmed massive cardiac enlargement, and the cause of death was listed as cardiomyopathy with cardiac arrhythmia. The cardiologist knew M died. The cardiologist was asked to provide his office records for review by a pediatric cardiologist evaluating M's brother and sister. This was important because there's a genetic component sometimes in sudden death in patients with cardiomyopathy. Through this whole time, the cardiologist never contacted the family. The pediatric cardiologist seeing the brother and sister reviewed records and confirmed medical error. They were, the family was referred immediately to an attorney and uh, were told not to speak with anyone, including me. There seemed to be medical error. Error in diagnosis, it was clearly a misdiagnosis. There was an error in management. No medications were suggested, no further treatment, no further evaluation, no restrictions of activities. But what happened here is the error and possibly root cause, the cardiologist performed all the tests himself and he reviewed them himself independently. And he had a strong confirmational bias. Anyone would when you look at M and his face and his ability, his endurance. He, uh, he was an elite athlete and was performed on the stress test like an elite athlete. What is an error? Just to give some definition, definitions. An error is an unwarranted failure of action or judgment to accommodate the standard of care. It results from incomplete information, but more often from fragmentary pieces of information delivered with varying degrees of accuracy. A human being with imperfect cognitive functioning is placed in a complex technological and sociological setting and told to perform perfectly. Medical decision-making is intensely personalized and often relies on judgment calls made under some duress. The potential for catastrophe is the hallmark of complex systems. It is impossible to eliminate the potential for such catastrophic injury in these high reliability organizations. So what are knowledge-based mistakes? There are three types, the availability heuristic, which is using the first information that comes to mind. Normal, athlete, wonderful person, can't be. Confirmation bias, which consists of seeking only evidence that confirms one's plans and impressions and dismissing evidence that disconfirms it. And it's an overconfidence tendency wherein a person believes in the validity of a chosen course of action without significant justification. And I'm just, these are hypothetical and I could not relate them because I have, I'm giving you my perspective and I do not have firsthand information having not spoken with the cardiologist. What happens when there's an error? This is clearly one of the most psychologically painful experiences for a family to have. Now bear in mind, it's not about us. It's really about the patient and the patient's family and those who are grieving. But we grieve too. Physicians are not generally, or here in particular, careless or lackadaisical. Top of class, Ivy League training, send your mother to them, fantastic cardiologist, wonderful trust, highly ethical person in this. Health professionals have an authentic desire to relieve pain and suffering of others. When they realize that the person whose care has been entrusted to them, this is a sacred trust, suffered harm due to error psychological impact can be, and in this case was devastating. An unpleasant stress response follows the realization that they committed a serious error. Stress about the patient's welfare, but likely about their own welfare as well, piles on. But what happened to Am's cardiologist? I really don't know. He closed his practice. He relocated somewhere essentially sort of disappeared. There was no contact with the local medical community. There were whispers, concerns, but nobody seemed to have firsthand information. 
there clearly was no contact with M's family. So he ran away. Or that's that would be a, a one interpretation of the actions. Legal action took place. <clears throat> I had no contact for over four years. Everyone was in a legal box, legal isolation. The procedure for the parents must have been anguishing. They had to get develop a day in the life of M and what he was like to show the jury. They had to compile his pictures, awards, stories, memories, articles about him. You can just imagine that shining face, that brilliant mind, uh, the kind of emotion that's brought up and the anguish of the poor parents having to go through this yet again, for what purpose? There was isolation and in inability to communicate except with the wife and legal team. They shielded their children. Their children were totally out of this and they went along as if things were going along. They had to maintain a level of stress and anger to pursue this action. This is not for the faint of heart and they were of the faint of heart. They had to cooperate with counsel. They had to be active and painful participants in this process. <clears throat> and it is not a healing process. The legal action, it's isolating. No communication regarding any proceedings. There's an element of shame and disgust. They were tired and I'm sure frustrated. There was no point, but it was pointed out to them there was no reasonable option after initiation of the, of the suit. This just proceeded pro forma and it was just business as usual. Legal action, what were they looking for? Resolution, that would have been hard to get. Confidential settlement was, was achieved. The loss was compounded. Confidential and settlement, they're oxymorons. They were unsettled. They were defeated yet again, and they suffered the loss repeatedly. Years after M's death and the settlement, and I'm putting that in quotes, Matt's, M's father asked for a meeting with the cardiologist. He apparently had located him on social media and it looked like his life went on and he was a happy, a happy person and it reestablished a very satisfying career. Before the meeting with M's father and uh, the cardiologist, I asked M's father what he expected said, did you want an apology? He said, no, don't want an apology. Do you want him to admit fault? He said, no. I said, what do you want? What is your one wish and hope? He said, please, I just want him to tell me I did nothing to hurt my son. Well, <clears throat> the meeting was gonna go forward. Contact information was obtained by me. The call was planned. I had the little card in my pocket with uh, the phone number. That evening, we had a medical society meeting about the crisis, the malpractice crisis that was going on and the concerns for the physicians. When I walked into this meeting, there was a lot of whispering and people were talking. And I said, well, you know, what's up? And they said, well, the cardiologist died suddenly at home. That cardiologist, M's cardiologist. According to the obituary, he was buried 60 miles from where M is buried. M's death occurred in 1999. The traditional practice when there was medical error in 1999, and I, I was in a traditional practice, was delay, deny, and defend. There's an inerrant, that means incapable of being wrong, and a classic response when a patient suffers from negligent treatment. Just delay, deny, and defend, and everything will work out. The traditional approach to unexpected harm provide limited information to parents, patients, and families. Respond only to specific inquiries. Avoid admission of fault, and in all cases, avoid malpractice litigation. Work with the risk management, work with your carrier, but do not make a case out of this. Insurance recommendations, because they're the ones that are, are, are going to be the pay, payers in this case. The historic position when wrongdoing or negligence was suspected was advised not to admit liability, and that's in quotes, or responsibility for any wrongdoing. Offer simple explanation, just facts, ma'am, nothing but the facts. 
explain known causes of event as accurately as possible without speculation. Never use words that may imply negligence, error, wrong, mistake, accident. Speak about the event with no one because they would then be called in as third parties and uh, deposed and, and what did he say? What did he think? Did he admit anything? Be aware of a non-cooperation cause or a duty to defend. Again, life is taken over by the legal process and the insurance companies have a significant role, had a significant role, more significant. There's an ethical obligation to disclosure. A physician should at all times deal honestly and openly with patients. It is a fundamental ethical requirement that a physician should at all times deal honestly and openly with patients. Patients have a right to know their past and present medical status and to be free of any mistaken beliefs <clears throat> concerning their conditions. Situations occasionally occur in which a patient suffers significant medical complications, euphemism, that may have resulted from the physician's mistake or judgment in these judgment in these situations. The physician is ethically required to inform the patient of all the facts necessary to ensure understanding has occurred. Only through full disclosure is a patient able to make informed decisions regarding future medical care. Concern regarding legal liability that might result following truthful uh, disclosure should not affect the patient physician's honesty with the patient. Now, talk about a conflict of interest. That is the most conflicted statement, very di difficult statement. And I'll go into that a little more. Patients have a categorical right. And what is reasonable disclosure of truthful information? What is reasonable? What is the disclosure? What's truthful? And what information? The information they suggest is the extent of their health conditions. That could be emphasized. The extent that information is available depends. Information known by treating professionals, variable. There's a lot of ambiguity there. A common sense reading of the Ethics Committee and Joint Commission places emphasis on honesty and openness and reasonably implies that the disclosure admits error or uses words that are unambiguous. The requirement does not oblige the professional to say error or mistake, although it is hard to see how a patient can be provided with, quote, all the facts necessary to ensure understanding of what has occurred, close quote, and yet have an admission of error withheld. And again, this puts people in a difficult situation. There's a lot of twisting and turning. There's a lot of spinning. Well, the Institute of Medicine realized that this problem was going on. And as early as June of 1998, the IOM launched its Quality of Healthcare in America project. And again, this was to address these quandaries and the difficulties that patients faced, and particularly <coughs> that physicians were dealing with. The goal was a 10-year effort aimed at securing measurable improvements in America's health and redesigning health delivery for the 21st century. We are in the 21st century. M died in 1999. M died as this was heating up and becoming a, a it, it, it was responding to a crisis and it was a, a really front of mind for a lot of practitioners. It was disruptive. It was uh, really <coughs> played on a lot of physicians' relationships. Now, in November of 1999, IOM first reported, it was entitled, To Error is Human, interesting title. It captured the professional and lay public's attention and piqued public interest. It did this by telling stories, made public aware of lives lost, just a few of them. Betsy Lehrman in Boston, one of the premier uh, oncology centers, received a massive overdose of chemotherapy. She was a very prominent uh, uh, newspaper uh, person and her the news of her death was devastating and it was, it was announced in a widespread fashion. Willie King, a man in, in Florida, had an amputation of the wrong lower extremity. How could that happen? Ben Cobb, a little eight-year-old, died during minor surgery of a drug mix-up. They were trying to infiltrate lidocaine into a surgical area, area and the, the doctor was handed a, a syringe of epinephrine. He gave him toxic doses and he died of a cardiac arrest. So these three things hit people in a very sensitive area and finally brought up the, the previously you know, shadowed uh, uh, group of medical errors and harm to patients. 
So again, the publication, interesting to read, a little bit outdated. When I saw it, I was kind of horrified and thought, well, what are they thinking? This is the tip of the iceberg. Over half of all adverse events resulted from medical error. Between 44,000 and 98,000 persons die each year from medical errors in just the United States hospitals. Medical errors remain a leading cause of death in the United States, and the cost is in the billions. <coughs> so the IOMs to errors human, the central concern was the topic of medical errors, and they pointed out, and I'll take a quote, quote, if discussed at all, is discussed only behind closed doors, close quote. Very important. Yes, they were discussed. They were discussed in M&M rounds. It were, the attendance was strictly limited. And it was uh, not something you would ever discuss in public or with anybody else. And the poor patients seem to have suffered in silence. For most of the 20th century, medical errors were usually concealed from the parties who were harmed, or they were discussed in such a way that no attention was called to the error or to the professional who committed it. Errors are, continue to be responsible for an immense burden of suffering and death. The final publication came out in 2001, Crossing the Quality Chasm. The prevention, detection, and mitigation of harm occurs in a learning environment, not in an environment of blame and reprisal. This is what they were suggesting. Designing systems for safety requires specific, clear, consistent efforts to develop a work culture that encourages reporting of errors and hazardous conditions, as well as communication among staff about patient concerns. This is still a, a, a format to be used uh, with all of our patient safety. And it really did start a tremendous effort, which continues to this day. And yes, don't be despondent. Things have improved and we're still, it's a work in progress, but it was a great start. The definition of error, let's go back to that. The knowledge-based errors, the state or condition of being wrong in conduct or judgment. You have insufficient information, misinterpretation of the problem situation. The health provider is stressed, pressured, or in some circumstances has a narcissistically based refusal to probe initial judgment in more depth. Narcissism is a whole different topic, and that would make a, a, a excellent series of seminars, but uh, pride has and egos have a great part of this as well. Knowledge-based mistakes. Now it's an action or judgment that is misguided or wrong. Following the availability heuristic, first information to mind. Confirmation bias, sinking only the evidence that confirms the plan. Overconfidence, person believes in the validity of chosen course without sufficient justification. There's skill-based errors. The disruptive routine, the nurse that is measured is pulling out the, the syringe and is reaching for the syringe that she knows that's where she put the lidocaine and hands the syringe. It may not be marked. There are all kinds of problems that needed attention and a whole bunch of human factors that were discovered with the reporting. Actor is so familiar with action that he performs it in an unconscious way. We always say we're so good at this, we could do it in our sleep. And sometimes I think people may attempt to do it in their half sleep. Rule-based error, failure to know a relevant rule. This is, goes into compliance. Misapplication of a good rule. Strong but rule plan leads to plan, strong but wrong plan leads to failure. And that's what they used to say of surgeons, occasionally wrong, but never in doubt. Person should have known the applicable rule, should have known the rule was inappropriate or ill-advised. There is a systemic nature of medical error. There is no isolated cause of an accident. Now, the, the accident, the, the word itself means the harm that results from the error. You do not have motor vehicle accidents. You have motor vehicle collisions, and the accident is re what results from the collision. People make errors, but systems can facilitate. They are not hardwired to prevent. They're meant to prevent, and we're trying to do that much more by making our systems better with the help of our human factors, individual professionals. A system can have faults that you can pick up or latent failure, something that's hidden that enables errors to occur or that fail to halt the error trajectory. You've all seen the arrow going through the Swiss cheese 
finding all the holes. That's holes. That's very, very simplistic. The, the model that would present this would be an, an arrow trying to go through a moving and three-dimensional hole, but still making it to the, the person. And unfortunately, the person at the tip of the sphere, sphere is the patient, and the person that is at that site in the event is frequently blamed inappropriately for the harm that occurs. There's a moral rationale for error disclosure. Patients have a categorical right to a reasonable disclosure of truthful information. The information, as we've said already, is the extent of their health, of their health condition, the extent that information is available, and information in facts known. Well, there's a 2002 study of disclosure practices of 200 hospitals. More than half said, they, of course, we always disclose death or serious injuries. As I said, somebody say, well, what more is there to disclose? They just saw what happened. I said, well, that's not exactly the point of disclosure. When presented with actual clinical scenarios, respondents were much less likely to disclose preventable harms than to disclose non-preventable harms of comparable severity. The reluctant to disclose preventable harm was twice as likely in hospitals having major malpractice concerns. Communicating error. There are regulatory recommendations, but there's no consensus on how truthfully or how comprehensively the healthcare providers should communicate error to harm parties. The Joint Commission says the minimus, the minimum amount available is possible. Patients and when appropriate, their families are informed about the outcome, including unanticipated outcomes. It says we must clearly explain the outcomes of any treatment or procedures whenever those outcomes differ significantly from anticipated outcomes. We basically anticipate anything, so slip that up into the previous category. Well, concealment of medical error. Rationalization is common and profoundly inhibits error reporting and subsequent disclosure to harm families. This is a spin. You may use a cognitive process to convince oneself that their behavior does not violate their moral standards. This is again, the extreme would be narcissism and in everybody there's pride and there's injury to your pride when something bad happens. Rationalization, euphemistic language. Use a term that's a little confusing or talk medicalese, that's, that would confuse them as well. Use advantageous comparisons. Distort the consequences of the action. Displacement or diffusion of responsibility. I just wish that nurse had done something a little different or called me a little earlier. Attributions of blame. I really wish you had been here to take care of granddad. Perhaps this wouldn't have happened. That's an extreme, and I don't, I, I don't have a personal experience with that. So that's a hypothetical, bad hypothetical. Medical error and harm disclosure. Epidemiologic studies estimate that 44 to 66 serious iatrogenic, that's physician-caused or care-caused injuries per 10,000 hospital admissions in the United States. Despite this, only two hospitals and more than 299 surveyed had rates within those ranges. Half of the hospitals reported making fewer than five disclosures per 10,000 admissions. Again, we're talking about 44 to 66. They're, they're disclosing five. Overall mean of disclosure was 7.4 per 10,000 annual admissions. The conclusion Hospitals disclose only 10 to 20% of serious preventable iatrogenic harms that occur in their patients. Harm disclosure, underappreciated, underrecognized or acknowledged, underreported, sometimes concealed, no disclosure, incomplete, incomprehensible disclosure. With the institutions still seek first notice legal action. They didn't, weren't even aware that this had happened within their institutions. Well, the medical liability crisis came to us in 2001, and it was experienced nationwide. With this, there were calls for transformations within the medical and legal communities. So this is our change in our approach to medical liability. In September of 2005, then-Senators Clinton and Obama proposed the Medical Error Disclosure and Compensation Act, MEDIC. This act did not pass, but the proposal brought the work that was being done at the University of Michigan to the forefront of the medical liability 
reform debate. Now we're getting towards a system that may work. Unfortunately, it was shot down in 2005. At that time, at the, the time of the crisis going on, 1999, 2002, in 1999, Dr. Stephen Kramer at the VA Haas administration had an early report of the importance of open and honest communication and early financial resolution in healthcare. That was within the VA system. Richard Boothman, the attorney and attorney at the University of Michigan, implemented Michigan model of a principled approach to disclosure and early resolution that included early, open, and honest communication and confirmed its financial viability. Richard Boothman is an amazing practical guy, very uh, down to earth, sees the problem, understands it, and it has developed a really good system at Michigan. They do not want to overlook any cases, and if they're going to pay money for medical harm, they'd rather pay it where it's going to do some good and not just pay it with all due respect to, into the legal system or uh, things that aren't really leading to a resolution. Tim McDonald, a good friend of mine, started in 2002 at the University of Illinois Hospital and Health Services System to build their patient safety system. Tim was a anesthesiologist who, like me, went to law school a little later on and was deeply, and he was a pediatric anesthesiologist. He was intensely interested in appropriate disclosure and resolution. The University of Illinois initiated an intervention to increase transparency. It insisted on early reporting and rapid invest, investigation of unexpected adverse outcomes and focused on event reporting, event analysis, peer support, and a process improvement all aimed at harm prevention. So this, is, this was the key, keystone to their patient safety system. In 2009, AHRQ, the Agency for Health Research and Quality, granted them $23 million in the Patient Safety and Medical Liability Grant initiative. This was called the CANDOR Toolkit, and it was tested and applied in 14 hospitals across three U.S. health systems. Other innovations have also been ongoing and are used in other systems. They've been designed, launched, and they've been published, their own versions of communication and resolution programs, CRP. <coughs> There's a little better, I think, acronym uh, in CANDOR. I was privileged to work on the CANDOR implementation program through AHRQ starting in 2014. The pilot work and process testings were carried out after the toolkit was developed at three U.S. health systems. It was very interesting. We were in Chicago working on this and we had, uh, uh, we used the SimLab type of a project. We had uh, people presenting as patients. These people we were unaware at the time, but they were Second City TV actors and they really were excellent and taught us how to really communicate in a much more effective fashion. Tim McDonald, again, my hat is off to him, <coughs> and he is one of my, uh, my role models. His response to a patient harm event involved seven pillars, and this was developed in 2006, and it was molded in, it was incorporated into CANDOR. It involved incident reporting early investigating while holding hospital bills and professional fees, even if all the facts weren't in yet. Early communication with the patient and family, facts just as known, no hypothetical, but bring them along. Full disclosure and apology and rapid remedy, if appropriate. System improvement, you don't want a, a harm, potential harm event to recur. That would be really silly. So you wanna get in there with your human factors, look why it occurred, improve it, and do an intense review then. That is the teach teachable moment. <coughs> data, excuse me, tracking and evaluation, and foremost, education and training. But that was Tim McDonald in 2010. Candor, the incident report triggers a rapid response team. This is like a code team, which concurrently, and it's important that concurrently this is going on, you're supporting the patient and the family, investigate the event, and there's ongoing support to caregivers. These were the lost souls or the silent victims of uh, these horrible events. There's communication to the patients and families within, and this is Tim, 15 to 30 minutes after notification of event, 
Early investigation is conducted rapidly, very labor intensive. Once consensus is reached on facts and a family, meet, a family meeting is convened to discuss findings of the event analysis, including the following. If appropriate, admission of mistakes. An apology, discussion of appropriate re resolution. The families are involved in this. What is it that would, would be resolution for them? A promise to waive or reimburse patients for hospital and professional fees. And he has a very intricate system to accomplish this. Cost of future care associated with preventable harm is covered. The seven pillars, thanks to Tim McDonald, measurable improvement on a targeted set of safety, communication process, and liability outcomes. The study limitation was there, though. This is one health system, self insured, all employed physicians and healthcare providers, an academic medical center. The outcomes increase in frequency of the incident reports, increased event analysis, increased po post-event communication, no increase in the cost, the outlay of cost for this segment. <clears throat> reduction in claims, reduction in legal fees, reduction in legal expenses, reduction in cost per claim, reduction in settlement costs, reduction in self-insurance costs. All results were of a clinically and financially significant magnitude, worth pursuing if you can do it. If M had an ideal candor response, the incident report would have been received with a report of unexpected, unexpected harm, which fits the definition of a candor event. <coughs> candor process would be triggered even if a cause was not clear. The candor system would be activated. A response and disclosure team would be would be gathered. Disclosure communication committee or members engaged with the family within 60 minutes. The event investigation and analysis team begins a report. All information is gathered and analyzed. A plan to prevent adverse event from recurring it is, is quickly put in place. Full disclosure, 30 to 45 days <laughs> after the event occurred. The organization would begin implementing resolution process. A decision would best be made on how to provide resolution appropriate to the family. Resolution might include preventing, pre providing compensation to the patient and or family or other specific arrangements. Caregiver care, very important. This came from Care for the Caregiver, another AHRQ uh, uh, process. And it really, caregivers need compassion, care and caring, Removal of barriers around them, they're pariahs, they're isolated, they've been involved in this horrible event and they can't discuss it. They need the support of their colleagues. They need accurate facts. They need to know why this happened to them. Communication from the organization and departments is very important. Leadership support is the key to making this work. The process of this, the segment of this <coughs> is care for the caregiver. So was this candor? Well, it was unexpected. It was sudden death after being told, being told his heart was normal. There was harm, there was death, caused by but for the failure to diagnose and treat. M died. Well, again, that's there's always a lot more detail involved there. Was there medical error? Well, there certainly was an incorrect diagnosis and a failure to treat. The resolution, admission of error, Assurance to M's dad that he did not harm his son. He did not make the mistake. He did not err. He did what he could for his son. He said he spent his life, his life uh, protecting his son, and he could not accept this. It was spare undue and ongoing pain and suffering, and there's no way to quantify that. The timeline certainly could have been compressed. Candor, and again, if you think I'm a proponent, is proactive, it's patient-centered, principle-based approach. There's a commitment to honesty and transparency. It's amicable and fair resolution that, <coughs> that honors the patient and the family and is uh, worked out with caring individuals. The model continues to evolve. Now, this is, a, a, a again, kind of a sneaky sentence. Candor works well when and where it works well. Candor hurdles, and there are hurdles, and this is not necessarily a, a easy sell and a light lift. It's a heavy lift. <coughs> Was the harm unexpected? 
Well, we're all outcome hardened. I mean, we expect the unexpected. That's what our daily lives are. I went into the operating room not knowing what was going to happen, hoping. I mean, I said I, I knew I had a plan, but I had to prepare for the unexpected. Was there an error? Well, let's, you have to agree to a, a reliable definition of error, and you can't believe how people fight the definition. Systematically apply the definition. Controversy over the term error. Error may be considered instead a recognized complication. A risk, of course the patient knew they could die. Of course the family knew he could die. They had seen, they had seen or heard of a sinkable episode. It was a cardiologist he was referred to. We're all vulnerable. We're all in the process of dying. Was this a possible outcome? Of course, any of us could die. Was this unanticipated? Well, by whom was it unanticipated? We anticipate everything. Did errors cause harm? Anticipate disagreement. If you have, I mean, as they say, as I said once, somebody said, well, it was a healthy baby with congenital heart disease. I said, that is not a healthy baby. You know, you can't, your definition of healthy and my definition could be different. And again, there is going to be massive disagreement. There, I should say, a little bit of ego and pride involved. And we seem to be error-hardened and harm-hardened. Good terms that are coming up in these days. Unexpected, who decides? What influences unexpected? Was this something the patient agreed to undertake when they undertook the procedure or were aware of their, their condition? Shouldn't they have known not to restrict his, his, his activities? You know, uh, and is it a recognized complication? Harm was a temporary, was a permanent death. It's pretty easy to assume, to, to figure out death, but death in an 89-year-old, is that unexpected? You know, it's, it's, they're, they're all soft. Causation, was there a direct link of the error to harm? Is it a but for other factors? And again, the old definitions. <coughs> well, who decides and how do they decide? Is it a legal or a reasonable person standard? If the elements are satisfied, is there a preponderance of evidence? Is there clear and convincing evidence? Or as I've been asked, how about beyond a reasonable doubt? And I, well, which is a pretty high standard applied to criminal uh, in criminal law. The environment is tough. It's outcome hardened, it's error hardened. And as I had a resident that would tell me whenever I told him something horrible would happen, well, we see this. And I think George was probably right. Elements of candor and the use of candor. It has to be generalizable and transportable to patients and families who experience harm. You have to provide support and communication. It's, it's an ethical dictum. Detailed review of the facts in context is something they are owed. Not I'm sure they understand they saw it. Following unexpected outcome, families require compassion, acknowledgement of pain and suffering, empathy, access, facts, early and ongoing communication, supportive openness, honesty, and transparency. <laughs> and they need trust and a trusting relationship. They need the truth. They hope that harm cannot be repeated. They need assurance. They need to know that they are not responsible for the error causing harm. In short, they require candor. So now I'm taking the system, which Tim McDonald and AHRQ are so responsible for, of candor, communication, and optimal resolution, and putting it in a lowercase of the normal words, plus kind of stealing from them the concept of still communication and, and optimal resolution. Factor in really <coughs> concentrate on the communication and the optimal resolution. Harm, loss, or unexpected outcome. Unexpected outcome, harm or death resulting from medical care. So the elements are the same elements, incomplete explanations, lack of communication, sense of abandonment, bewilderment, bewilderment, uncertain of person to contact, may seek office and hospital or call or send concerns. They talk to everybody and anybody and everybody is related to a lawyer. Everybody is related to a doctor that certainly knows that could have been prevented. So you send a letter and you get a letter back and the response may read, and this is my construction, nobody else's, not based on any fact or uh, models. Thank you for contacting us. Your concerns are very important and we take them very seriously. Your case was reviewed by the attendees and staff who found that the care provided was appropriate and met the standards of care required. We extend our condolences and assure you that we always strive to provide the best care possible to all patients. Not helpful. When candor is unavailable, 
candor may be sought. Candor elements not met after the process initiated and care appropriate, that, that, is, that could be addressed. Candor event missed, questions remained and communication sought. This is where a patient advocate steps in and may, and I think has have helped patients uh, get through this model in a supportive way. <clears throat> so when there's an apparent lack of transparency and access, missed settlement opportunities, prolong the process for complete resolution, significant stress and agony from all parties involved, hinders care improvement and leaves others vulnerable, missed opportunity for systems and performance improvement, patients and families without answers seek resolution elsewhere and anywhere. Families will forgive errors but will not forgive concealment of truth or lies. It is important for everyone to understand that families have firsthand information and they don't have just versions of the facts. So you don't want to sit down with them and start out by telling them what they should think or what they saw when they weren't there. The role of the patient advocate, and that's something I am <coughs> now proud to call myself a board certified patient advocate. Patient advocacy is an area of specialization in healthcare concerned with advocacy for patients, survivors, and caregivers. Patient advocates give voice to these, these three groups of patients. Patient advocates help guide a patient or their family through the healthcare system. Advocacy is an ethical imperative. Advocates question the status quo or find and explain information or options. We're here to help. Courage to deal with patients and families who have suffered harm caused by medical error. The understanding that there are no eloquent words to speak of loss. It's a tough process. Courage to honor the pain and the grief of the families. Respect and dignity of families and patients deserve. That's the courage part of it. And this is if, uh, softly uh, modeled after a, a, a very eloquent uh, a talk a friend of mine, Maureen Stratford, gave called Dorothy's Ruby Slippers and Our White Coats. She also said that we need heart full of wisdom, a compassionate heart, and a profound connection. As Maureen Stratford said, and she unfortunately died last year, compassion, intelligence, and courage must be blended in a finely woven tapestry to form a patient advocate. Requirements for patient advocate. Proven competence, relationships, humility, or integrity. Competence, relationships, humility equal credibility. According to Navy SEAL Chris Fusel, and this is one of the things that I uh, keep in the front of my mind at all times in dealing with any patient. Patient advocacy. If candor is the process is followed and followed well, and if accepted communication and resolution are provided, the advocate bows out. There's nothing essential and nothing they can do to be helpful. They can be there to assist, but they seem to have gotten the benefit. Candor, if rejected, the patient advocate reviews the decision and explains rationale with family who may understand. If this leads to resolution, support is needed or consider legal action. Candor of no contact following harm event caused by medical error. Patient advocate supports the patient in requesting communication and explanations. We empower people. If rejected, the case is reviewed. And if resolution cannot be achieved, other options explored with ongoing candor. If no communication and a serious unexpected, unexpected outcome, patient advocate works with the family to provide a review of the case, explores options available, including family meetings with providers if possible. A resolution is sought through explanation and acceptance or legal action. If communication fails and the likelihood of negligence, cases reviewed and legal refer, referral may be initiated. Candor elements used <clears throat> as a basis for candor advocacy, unanticipated event, harm caused by error, same elements stolen from candor. So candor is in the goal of lowercase candor, communication and optimal resolution. We're looking to get resolution for the family and some closure uh, for them. The recommended approach, the candor approach principle, then this Tim, Tim McDonald has written this most recently, we should look for a principled or ethical approach to patient harm. We should have normalization of compassionate honesty. We need robust reporting of patient safety events. We can't fix what we don't know. It's just like you can't cure what you can't measure. 
And we really need people to come forward and we're making tremendous strides in all these, uh, all these things. Human factors-based analysis. More than anything, we need open and honest communication following harm events. Thank you, Dr. McDonald, for being my uh, mentor and hero and bringing this forward and making a very, a very difficult case. And hopefully we can prevent this from happening, uh, what happened to M, uh, from happening to other people. And also I, not to minimize the stress and the pain of M's very caring cardiologist who left us all too early and the uh, silent epidemic uh, of burnout and uh, uh, loss of compassion fatigue, it's called. So I'd like to recommend everyone to Candor and Candor. And if anyone would like to ask any further questions, I'll um, go back to you, Catherine, and ask you if uh, we can take them now. Thank you very much. Dr. McNicholas, that was a really wonderful presentation and very <coughs> candid and appreciate uh, you coming on and presenting that today. It's very much needed, so thank you. We did have some questions. So the first one is, can you go over or discuss the differences between the all caps candor and the word candor? The all caps candor is the AHRQ product and they have a toolkit and uh, a lot of support that goes into that. And that's, that's a program that has been used in uh, several hospitals adopted by them. So that is the, it, it's all the same. It's, it's the same letters, but some are large caps. The candor is sort of the macro, and that's for major uh, events that occur in a hospital that are reported. And uh, it's a big heavy lift for everybody there. The words are the same, but the micro candor, the one that I am now uh, focusing on, is the candor that doesn't make it into the big leagues. This is the candor that, and it is big league to families. This is the candor that it involves transparency, uh, open communication, um, sincerity of expression, and our ability to, on a human level to deal with patients. The big candor, big letter, letter candle, candor really is utilized now, but the concept is what I think should be generalizable and patient advocates should be able to take this and use this in a system and, and discuss it and tell people what we, especially attorneys, to tell them what, what we like and it's what patients need. Okay, thank you. Why is CANDOR, the, the all caps CANDOR, why is that not adopted universally? That is a very heavy lift. It's labor intensive. It is uh, resource intensive. It's uh, It works well in an all-employed situation with physicians when they're all under the same legal umbrella and their, and their insurance is all the same. It, it is much, it can be used anywhere with the agreement of outside attorneys, uh, community lawyers, but there's an incredible amount of buy-in that is required. The organizational buy-in I have found is, is really quite uh, robust and that's an easy one. But then it's the Department of Safety. This is part of the culture of safety, and everyone wants a culture of safety. But I think in this case, I have taken and, and used candor not to be threatening, but use the concepts and apply it to a particular, well, it's a huge segment that are, are not carved out into the major, or the hot, uppercase uh, candor people. But it's, you know, people are busy. There's a lot to do. There's a lot of things that people, don't report because they don't feel it's their role to report, but it really does need a lot of support. You need a well-organized care for caregiver. You need a well-organized risk department. You need a well-organized safety department. You need leadership uh, support at the unit level and uh, the physician and nurses. Nurses are primarily involved in this and you need to support them as well. And it's, it's the, conspiracy of silence that we have to get over or the patient will understand it and they'll go on. It doesn't work that way. We really need to help patients and to not say just because you didn't uh, get the attention you think you deserved, we can't review this and look and, and get to some resolution. And I think that's the important part. Resolution can be, can be achieved. Communication, boy, I tell you, we speak many, many, many languages and not all are easily interpretable. So it's not an easy thing for uh, for institutions to adopt, but AHRQ has really 
made a tremendous effort and have a tremendous, if you want to look on their websites, uh, it's there with their results. And it's, uh, I would just say it's the right thing to do, whether it's uppercase or lowercase, it still means the same to me. It's communication and optimal, and I stress optimal resolution. You mentioned care for the caregiver. I know that we're living in an age of where, of course, there's, and there always has been so much stress for the, the caregivers, the physicians, the, the nurses, those in clinical practice. Do you need a CANDOR program to provide care for the caregivers? No, you don't. The need for that is, is really so acute and so obvious that most institutions have this in place. And, and it, it's, it's, as you can imagine with our recent pandemic experience, the uh, frontline uh, folks really needed that care. And they need to they need to be able to diffuse and they need to talk to people who understand and can help them. Uh, and I think most hospitals have seen the necessity and have poured the resources into that system. It's it's another thing for people still to admit that they're suffering and that maybe that means they're a failure of some sort. But I think if you reach out to these folks, you have it, they know it's there, you approach them on an off time when they're not needed. I think the most important thing is people, as M's father, I mean, they really want to know, were they the, the cause of that, that horrible outcome, or was there something else that occurred? There's a group of people that are so eager to talk after the events, and we used to have post-event debriefs, or I used to have them when I was actively uh, working, not active, I'm always actively working, when I was uh, employed, let's say. But it was uh, it was wonderful because people really got the support of those around them. The first thing you'd ask, well, who's responsible? And everyone's hand would go up. And you go, well, let's talk about that now because that really is not the case. And what can we do to make the environment better? What can we do to prevent this from happening again? They want to be involved with the uh, with acknowledging the event and with uh, preventing it from happening again. That's the major difficulty. You don't want to ever see this again. So you have to talk about it. I used to think as a resident, I was uniquely stupid and saw bad things and was involved with the things that I wish I wasn't involved with. But uh, that was not my uniqueness. And when I saw it continue to happen, it happened to this day, it's uh, you really have to, somebody has to stand up and say, I think we should look at this. And the nurses are incredibly empowered to raise their hand and say, we need to review this. I need to know what happened. I need to know what was it my fault? What was it? We have found incredible things that led to events that you wouldn't, I could write books about it. It's, uh, it's amazing. But I think care for the caregiver is something we owe every person that we care for uh, as human beings, that kind of compassion. And it's sort of the courage and the heart that Maureen Stratford speaks of. And we need to weave, weave that fabric around everybody and lay it on them. Do you think that in the last 20 years or so, has there been a, a difference that you've seen at all in the younger generation of doctors and residents coming up? Are they, are they teaching anything in, in medical school now? Are, have there been any changes of how the younger people, how they deal with, you know, when an error occurs as opposed to perhaps those of us who are older where, you know, it's a struggle to admit perhaps something happened and to deal with that guilt? Do they, do you, do you find that there's a difference between the generations in that? There is no question. This, this process that began in the early part of this century has been really vibrant and caused immense changing. Team training is a very <coughs> important concept and it, it really allows people to communicate. You introduce yourself, you know who's, who's there on your plane, Aviation made a big, big stride. Patient safety is part of every medical school curriculum. Uh, the, the influence and the, the cross-fertilization is, is, uh, is wonderful. The fact that you could call a human factors person to look at the situation and find out why somebody with a stroke fell in the bathroom when we have right-handed bathrooms and left-handed bathrooms. So I think medical students are thinking that way. They're, they are communicators. Uh, and I think that that is going to change the way that medicine is practiced. The support of the young physicians is there. And I think we just can't let them be harmed and let something happen. The cardiologist that I spoke of was not an old person. 
and he had many years that were lost uh, because of, I think, because of the effects of this. But again, that's my feeling, the effects of Emma's death. So I think, yes, Catherine, we have made tremendous strides. There's still a long way to go, and it's an ongoing process. But we have wonderful people in the field. Leadership has really done a lot. I mean, every hospital is now focused on patient safety, not just their ratings, but they really the patient safety that they provide. So I'm very proud to have been associated with institutions that do this, think very highly of this. And I'm very proud of people like Tim McDonald. And a lot of physicians are being trained differently and they're being trained in different cultures of medicine. And I think that really helps. And you've got to slow down and you've got to think, you know, as we talk about patient safety ethics, it's vigilance, mindfulness, compliance, and the biggest dose we need is humility. And I think they're given this. And I'm very proud of a couple of people, a couple of my friends, kids who have just graduated from medical school and their enthusiasm, we can't stifle it. Bad things happen. Sick patients get sicker and we need to be able to prevent this. And I think, yes, I'm proud to have been there and I'm proud to still be able to be there and helping patients, which is my uh, real uh, desire in life. And I've added my contact here, Catherine, if you didn't notice. Good, wonderful. Well, I wanted to thank you so much. Did you have any, any other words of advice or anything that you wanted to leave with us today before we uh, wrap up? I just thank the audience, which it, it may have been a little heavy emotion in medicine, but this is this is a story, and Matt M is buried very deep in my soul in that little cemetery, and I'm looking at his picture now. So just remember when you see that that uh, you know we can help people, we can help their families, and we we look at our failures and we want to improve, and that's. You know, performance improvement is really something that is uh, uh, buried in a different section of the cemetery. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. We very, very much appreciate this. Attendees, please use the contact information on the screen. If you have any questions, uh, you can contact Dr. McNicholas uh, directly. You can, if you have any other questions that you think of, you can send us those and we'll forward them on. Please remember your PACOM and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.